love to be right. <laughs> you know, as humans, we all love to be right. And we just feel like we know that we're right when we're right. But there's this thing sometimes called mistakes. You know, and sometimes mistakes can help make us feel somewhat defeated, weak, or vulnerable. And as humans, we try to protect ourselves from these feelings, and, you know, they're inevitable and necessary in our life. Without them, we can't learn and grow, and I, by identifying where we went wrong, we can then begin to take the responsibility to do better the next time. So today, as we spend this short time together, I want you to think about the title of the sermon today. Think it possible that you may be mistaken. <laughs> you know, my partner Jerry, who will actually be here next week, um, we're not the best when it comes to doing home improvement. And a few years ago, the truth of this was brought out. The hanging system in our front hall closet fell apart and came away from the wall. And so upon assessing the situation, it became clear to me that we just needed to replace the hanging pieces. And I thought, well, this shouldn't be too hard. All would require us to like a trip to the hardware store, pick up the right system that would work, and everything would be fine. And so I knew that before I went and purchased that I'd have to get the right measurements. So I measured the space and wrote down what I thought was the correct measurements. As I made the trip to Lowe's to purchase um, what I thought would work, I came back home believing that, you know, we could get this done in no time at all. This would be fixed. It would be great. But then I began to unpack the pieces. <laughs> and it was apparent to my partner, Jerry, that something was wrong. But, you know, me, I, I thought, well, no, no, it's, it's got to be the manufacturer, they measured wrong, it's not me, we can make this work. And he kept saying, okay, okay. And so, three hours went by. And by that time, my patience and my unwillingness to admit that I might have been mistaken became even stronger. And so finally, after exhausting all possibilities and not willing to really give up, you know, I measured again and found out that, yes, indeed, I had written down the wrong dimensions. So I gathered everything up, you know, went to the hard, back to the hardware store, got the correct stuff, and came back and began to put it together. And not once did I look to my partner and say, you know, I really made a mistake here. And I, looking back, I realized that if I would have admitted that I had been mistaken, I could have saved myself anguish and both of us a great amount of frustration. And I wonder how many of us in our effort to prove that we are right fail to admit when we're wrong. With a lot of mistakes, Others see it before we do, and they often stick out kind of like a sore thumb, remembering that facts help us 
to own up to mistakes sooner. And there's no way around us, every one of us is going to make a mistake. That's just part of life. No one's perfect. You know, mistakes will happen. By admitting them, it shows confidence and humility on our part. And growing up, I had a lot of practice at making mistakes. I made small ones, big ones, and downright silly ones. And I remember particularly one particular, back in college, I had purchased a yellow Maverick. Those of you who, that might not mean anything, but it was, it was one, of, one of Ford's wonderful cars that was really a piece of whatever. But anyway, um, for a college student, it was perfect. And I, and I bought it the summer of my junior year, and when the owner showed me the car, he said, well, I need to point out to you that there's just one small thing with this car, and that is that the car will overheat. So to prevent it from overheating, what you need to do is you need to make sure that as soon as you see the gauge rising, that you turn on the heat to the highest um, temperature, and that will draw the heat off the engine and prevent the car from overheating. I said, okay, sure, sure. And um, spring turned into summer, and we all know how hot Illinois, especially Chicago summers, can be. So I experienced my first test of the car overheating. I was traveling down the Eisenhower Expressway, and it was one of those hot, humid Chicago days. And the car started to overheat, and I knew, well, i got to turn this, but I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that, because if I do that, then I'm just going to get really miserable, and I'm already miserable, so I think I, I think we can make it. But my lack of action soon became apparent as the car gauge quickly was rising to the level of no return. And I quickly responded by throwing the heat on at the highest warm setting, but by this time, the car was not going to cool down. I had no other choice but to wind my way to the side of the road and open up the hood and hope that things would eventually calm down. Luckily for me, I was able to maneuver the car to the shoulder and within a matter of a few minutes, a good Samaritan came along who just happened to have a large container of water. And he waited with me for the engine to cool down and then assisted me in pouring some water into the radiator. And after about a half hour, the car was cool and I was able to start the car and go on my way. Now this was a silly mistake I should have checked and double-checked, and I should have followed the counsel that I had been given of someone who knew better than what I did about this car. But I thought, you know what, I know what's best. And I sometimes wonder how many times in that I know what's best, we fail to admit that we're wrong. So, what is a mistake, really? You know, think about it. And why is it hard for us to admit that we've made them? Our mistakes sometimes just don't wound people. They also limit us from having meaningful relationships with the very people that we have wounded. Who, strangely enough, are precisely those we love most. So we then cheat ourselves of days and moments filled with happiness and joy from growing and maturing into lives 
we were meant to have. Our mistakes are incredibly powerful things. They hold the power to heal. And we've heard, well, we should own our mistakes, and that's true. But we also need to share our mistakes. And to really share a mistake is to also share the path that led you to that and admit that. And as you do so, not just to acknowledge them, but it also shows to the world, naked anew, ourselves, our authentic selves. The gentle, awesome power of mistakes. It's the most life-giving thing of all, and of course, it's difficult work to admit them. We all make them. Some are really simple, like uh, we don't need to stop at the store, there's plenty of milk left for breakfast, and then some are bigger, such as, don't rush me, we have plenty of time to get to the airport before the flight leaves. And some are crucial, as I, I know it was raining, I'm not sure, I thought I saw someone breaking into the home across the street. No one enjoys being wrong. It's an unpleasant emotional experience for us all. The question is how we respond when it turns out that we are wrong. When there wasn't enough milk left for coffee, when the traffic was, you know, you missed the flight, and some of us admit we were wrong, say, oh, oops, you were right. And we should have gotten more milk, and we should have, you know, but some of us imply we were wrong, but don't do so explicitly in a way that is satisfying, where we actually admit the mistake, such as, well, I had plenty of time to get to the airport. It was the traffic. It hadn't been so bad. Um, we'll leave earlier the next time. So despite our best intentions and efforts, it's inevitable. At some point in your life, believe it or not, you will be wrong. <laughs> and mistakes can be hard to digest, so sometimes we double down rather than face them. When you refuse to admit your mistakes, you're also less likely and less open to constructive criticism. Experts have said with that um, constructive criticism that can help us to hone our skills, rectify our bad habits, and improve ourselves overall. But sometimes we cling to old ways of doing things, even when new ways are better and healthier and smarter, and we cling to self-defeating beliefs long past their shelter life. A study from Stanford researchers found that subjects were more likely to take responsibility for their mistakes when they believed they had the power to change their behavior. But this is always easier said than done. And so how exactly do you change your behavior and learn to embrace your mistakes? I think you first need to learn to recognize your, un, your usual justifications and rationalizations that we all use. Think of a time when you were wrong and you knew it, but you tried to justify it instead. And remember how it felt to rationalize your behavior and pinpoint that feeling the next time that you find yourself in that happening. What you'll find is people are often more forgiving than what we might think. And traits like honesty, humility, make us more human and therefore more relatable. You know, even in our own UU history, 
we have several examples of mistakes that we've made. And one was brought to light a few years ago in Cincinnati, Ohio, just very close to us. Uh, Walter Hentz tells a story. He was a church historian at the Northern Hills Fellowship, and he never knew how prejudice had shut down an African-American Unitarian congregation right in his own city until the story was told in a sermon in 1998. When the Reverend Sharon Dittmar gave her talk about that day, Mr. Hentz learned about something that amazed him and made him sad. The Reverend W.H.G. Carter was a minister who founded a Unitarian church in Cincinnati in 1918. It was probably the only Unitarian church in America at that time that was an African-American Unitarian church. And it was called the Church of the Unitarian Brotherhood. And at the time, other Unitarians knew about the church and its founder, but turned their backs because the church was African-American and poor. 20 years later, someone came to investigate, but the conclusion that the official report was, I do not recommend Unitarian Fellowship for Mr. Carter or his movement. In other words, there was no support, no ministerial degree for Reverend Carter, and no money for his church. And shortly afterwards, the Church of the Unitarian Brotherhood closed down. By, by, like Mr. Hertz that day, Mr. Leslie Edwards was also prized to hear about the Reverend W.H.G. Carter in a sermon. That's my grandfather you were talking about, said Mr. Edwards to a hushed congregation during the discussion afterward. I never thought I'd hear his name mentioned in a Unitarian church. Mr. Edwards was a member of the Northern Board of the Northern Hills Fellowship. We can't let this drop, Mr. Hertz said. We ought to find more about this family. And so Mr. Edwards and Mr. Hertz decided to find out more. What they found sparked an extraordinary set of reconciliation involving two mostly white Unitarian Universalist congregations, five generations of remarkable African-American family in a city scarred by brutality and race riots and the Unitarian Universalism as a faith. And here's what they found out. Reverend W.G. Carter was a big man with a big personality, light skin, six foot two, a man of charm, energy, imagination, and learning. He towered over his wife, Beulah, who was only five feet tall and their 15 children. He trained as a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, but following in his father's footsteps, but he never served as a minister because he disagreed with many beliefs of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and agreed more with the beliefs of Unitarian Universalism. And so as an adult, Reverend Carter worked as a photographer, a mural painter, a teacher, a postal worker, and he moved with his wife and family to Cincinnati in 1918. And he was, at that time, was also a political activist. And so along with running the Unitarian Church he founded in Cincinnati, he also was a candidate many times for the Re Republican City Council. 
and he founded a club called the Grand Order of Dizens, which initials spelled God. And he was a dedicated provider of worker of food, money, and clothing to advocacy to the poor blacks in Cincinnati. With his own family, he could be quite playful, it's said, and he, one time he was at the dinner table, he carved carrots into hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs. He also could be quite generous, and he took his whole family to the 1934 Chicago's World's Fair. And so what Mr. Edwards remembered about his grandfather was you were supposed to live up to a certain standard, and he'd make you know what that was. And among the forbidden phrases in the Carter household were, I don't care, and it's not my fault. So here, Mr. Hertz and Mr. Edwards shared with the congregation what they had learned about this reverend, and what he was like, and the whole sad story that had happened to this African-American church. And other church members started wondering, what can we do? And the most important part they decided was to have an apology to the Carter family. And they felt that as a congregation, they wanted to admit that they had what they had called the stain on the Unitarian movement and on their local Unitarian churches, occasioned by our rejection of his brotherhood church over 60 years ago. And so Mr. Hartz and Mr. Edwards Church set up a weekend of activities, and they invited more than 100 members of the Carter family, and an African-American minister, Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed, came down from his church in Toronto and gave a Sunday morning sermon, which he called The Burden of Guilt. And here, in what he said, is where the lessons can be learned. Remembering the past with regret can strengthen the resolve to do the only thing we can do together to shape a more just tomorrow. For in that moment, when one person feels hurt and the other feels sympathy, a bond is established. The connection can be built upon, and as the relationship grows, we can move beyond avoidance, guilt, and self-hatred, and let go of anger and re recommendation to embrace the only thing that can sustain us in the long haul, the love and support of one another that is found and shared in this community and in our vision of tomorrow. So no one knew what would really happen at, if one of the Carter family members would actually accept this apology and another person rose to the pulpit, and she was Sarita Smith of Denton, Texas, a mother with two grown children and a great-grandfather of W.H. Carter. And as she began to speak, people were still not sure. She said she was skeptical about apologies to black people from everything from slavery to the neglect of Africa. And she said, we read the headlines and we say, so what changes now? She said she expected more from Unitarian Universalists. You are supposed to be the most liberal of a mainstream denominations. It is very meaningful to me that you took the initiative to acknowledge a history that must be embarrassing for you and to attempt to make amends in the present for what was wrong in the past. 
But we must also acknowledge that racial reconciliation, true racial reconciliation, requires commitment. And I hope you will reflect on this weekend often and let it galvanize you. And I hope that it will cause you to go beyond the comfortable friendships that you have with your black Unitarian friends. We Carters encourage you to continue to look into your hearts and to ask the difficult and complex questions and act. We accept your apology. The silence in the sanctuary was broken by a sudden burst of applause and Sarita Smith found herself in the arms of the church minister, Reverend Sharon Ditmar. The minister's black robe evoked them both, and when the hug seemed to go on a beat or too long, Sarita Smith later wrote, it dawned on me that she was crying and leaning on me for support. Unitarian Universalism is a living faith, and we think that people should be free to believe what they must believe. But sometimes, and this is when we mean when we say ours is a creedless religion, but being a living faith means that any one of us can change what we believe if we experience a deeper truth that contradicts our previous beliefs. But in order to change, we must be open to new thoughts, new ideas, and new experiences. You must have your ears open to hear the experiences of people with whom you are in community with. So, what about each of you? Have any of you made mistakes? Do any of you hang on to what you think is right long past those moments when you might have been proven wrong? The story is told of a town several years ago and a place far, far away and carved on the side of the mountain, big and tall, so no one could miss it, were the words, the answer is no. And no one knew exactly where the words came from and why they were there, but they had just always been there. And so every time someone in the town needed to make a decision, they would look to the mountain. <laughs> and the answer would always come, that the answer was always no. And so for a while, this worked really well. And then one particular day, one of the town members said, well, why is the answer always no? Why couldn't it be yes? So she called a town meeting, and she got them together. And people began to talk. And she said, well, what if the answer was yes? And they said, well, yeah, what if the answer was yes? And so. They hired the town carsman, and he went up to the mountain, and he said, he changed, and what he then said was, the answer is always yes. And so things went along in the town, and people were excited and happy, and every time they needed an answer, they'd look to the mountain. And of course, the answer was always yes. But then as they began to really ponder and think with each other, they said, well, well, maybe it's not always yes. And maybe sometimes it's wait, and sometimes it's we need more information, and sometimes it's no, and so what are we going to do? And the town carver said, well, you know, I can't not carve all that up on the mountain. So he came up with a brilliant idea. 
Instead of carving, the answer is always no. The answer is always yes. He, he carved is, the answer is under construction. <laughs> and so, in our lives, as we think about our mistakes, and think about the people in our lives that we hold dear, sometimes we need to say the answer is under construction. We need to think about it. And we need to not always say no, nor always say yes. I challenge you in this coming week that if there are people in the congregation, in your lives, in your family, that you feel that you need to make amends and that you need to admit that you were wrong. I challenge you to do that. And the reason being is because we're talking about possibilities here. And I promise you that if you do that, it will open into your life a realm of possibilities that you cannot even imagine. And you will be welcome and forgiven, and relationships that once were scarred will once again be relationships that are a blessing and a support in your life. And as a community, I challenge us that we will continue to be open, that we won't always say the answer is always no, or the answer is always yes but that we will take the time to listen, to reflect, and to be present, and be open to the possibilities that might come into our lives. May it be so.